Y'all, Stages is now sponsored by BetterHelp, and I couldn't be more excited because I love therapy. So I encourage you, if you've had a tough year and a half, <laughs> why don't you give them a shot? You can find a therapist that you can connect with. Their resource is thousands of therapists, well-trained and experienced. You can keep looking until you find someone that you click with. They have customized online therapy. They do offer videos, but they also offer phone and live chat sessions. So you don't even have to be seen. You can only be heard. What are you waiting for? Go to BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P.com slash stages. And for our cast members, you get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash stages. Go, go, go. Go find your healing. Go find your happy. Stages podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. Welcome to Stages Podcast. Where we're bringing creation and connection to center stage. Tamara Tooney, you buried the lead. You grew up in a funeral home. (laughs) We are not glossing over that. Go back to that, please. Hi, cast members. Today's episode was recorded last spring. Tamara Tooney graciously agreed to be one of our very first interviews, and we are pleased to share it with you today. Tamara Tooney is an actor, singer, director, writer, producer, and philanthropist. In 2007, she won the Tony and the Drama Desk Award for Spring Awakening. She has starred in TV and film and on Broadway. You might recognize her from her long run in Law & Order Special Victims Unit as medical examiner Melinda Warner. She serves on the board of Harlem Stage, God's Love We Deliver, and Figure Skating in Harlem. Please welcome my friend, Tamara Tooney. Tamara Tooney to stage, please. Tooney to the stage. I might just add I'm a trustee at Carnegie Mellon University only because that's where I am right now because we had commencement yesterday. And it was in-person commencement for the kids. I mean, it really is like coming out of a dark tunnel into the light. It was a in-person but closed ceremony. So families were only able to watch virtually. And it was a a minimum of representation of trustees as well, because the trustees are legion and there were 10 of us representing. So it was intimate, but it was full of life and hope and vigor and excitement. And, you know, everyone was just, I mean, first of all, just happy to be able to gather in any kind of form and then to be able to celebrate the and mark this day and mark this, this accomplishment, you know, was extraordinary. So yeah, it was, it was really quite wonderful. What do you feel when you step back onto your campus? Well, you know, that's the thing. I mean, here I am in my, you know, trustee garb, and it feels like only last week <laughs> mm. I was in my cap and gown sitting out in the field. It brought back, uh, you know, so many incredible memories. And seeing myself and all the faces of those kids, it was just, it was emotional. It was just really 
quite emotional. The young you has to be so proud of the present you. You know, you think just yesterday you're sitting in the field at Carnegie Mellon and you just heard essentially encompassing uh, your resume. And don't you just go, holy crap, I've done all that. I've done it. Done what that young woman dreamed of doing. Yeah. And half of the stuff I never even dreamed of. I never imagined sitting on the platform as a trustee of CMU. And what was so great is uh, last evening, uh, uh, one of the trustees just had a couple of us over to his home, his beautiful home outside of Pittsburgh. And um, I, I was with uh, four other trustees and, and all of the trustees, all of us came from such humble beginnings. I was just in awe of all these people who, when you think of a trustee, you think, oh, Everyone has a silver spoon in their mouth or whatever, mm -hmm. but it is not the case. And, and so it was really inspiring and I'm so honored and sometimes um, overwhelmed. But at the same time, I think based on my life's journey, of course, I can contribute in this capacity. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah it's really great. Really great. What was it like growing up? Did you have parents that were creative and talented and, and pushing you toward music and acting and all that? My parents never pushed any of us uh, toward anything. I have uh, five siblings, a brother and four sisters, and Whoa. they never pushed us toward anything. What they did was just supported everything. Growing up in, in Homestead, which was the seat of U.S. Steel for a couple of centuries, real blue collar town, where upon graduation, you had two options and both options were promising and good options. One option was to go to university and the other option was to go to work at U.S. Steel. And both of those options were were great options. You could make an incredible living in, at working at the steel mill, support your family in an incredibly comfortable way, or you could go off to college. And that being said, my public school education was top notch. Math, sciences, I learned uh, to type, I had languages, and most importantly, I had exposure to the arts. It was just such an incredibly well-rounded education. When I look and have witnessed the state of public school education over the mm -hmm. past 20 years or so, mm -hmm. you know, it breaks my heart. Lots Why are we not providing our children with the best possible education? And that's not about a test taking. It's about teaching them how to be creative, how to right. think outside the box, how to right. take an idea and run, how to be an entrepreneur. That's what we need to teach them. The love of learning is the seeds that will last for forever. And those, what some would call extracurricular activities, those are just as important as the ABCs. And the arts and the sports and that kind of discipline and that kind of teamwork and that kind of leadership building and that kind of, as you said, creative thinking is mm -hmm. invaluable. Mm -hmm. moving Absolutely. forward in life. It seems like all, most of what the schools are trying to turn out now are worker bees. Memorize and regurgitate. And it's not about real creativity and real leadership at all. Exactly. Not at all. And finding where you belong. I find all that extracurricular working together as a team that lets you find your place in the world. And that's what encourages them to then find a little ounce of joy in the ABCs and the one, two, threes and keeps you going day after day. Yeah. If you take all that purpose out and this is where I belong out, then 
the kids feel, what's the point of doing all this stuff that I'm not going to use right. when I walk into the world? That's right. Yeah. That's so true. Yeah. I see myself auditioning for Law and Order about 34 times and never booking the gig. No. And yet, <laughs> and that here you I was are. Say, Stephanie, you must have done SVU. No, I couldn't even be, you know, lying in the morgue for you. I couldn't even get that. Darn it. But I, what are you looking at? Tw- tw- is it true? 20 years you have been part of this franchise. And after 20 years of being that part, is there still evolution to be found through a huge franchise like Law & Order? You know, it's interesting you say that. I mean, uh, Law & Order is definitely a uh, procedural show, right? We call them procedurals. And um, it's really... That our SVU is really about, you know, the cases more than it is about the people, even though um, on SVU, we understood a bit more about um, uh, the characters' personal lives than we did on the other Law & Order um, shows, like uh, the original Law & Order and Criminal Intent at that time. You know, we got a little more of a glimpse into, you know, Stabler's life and Benson's life and Finn's life, you know. Dr. Warner is interesting because my job was really to deliver the information. So mm-hmm. so there wasn't a whole lot of like character development or or evolution. I would just say in this year, in this season, for example, when I I first came back to do an episode uh, that I filmed in September, they definitely had my character dealing with the COVID crisis. You know, that was the undercurrent of it and the way that it was demonstrated was in the fatigue on my face, the marks from the mask, my snippy attitude. (laughs) You know, I had no patience for questions. You know what I mean? And it's (laughs) funny because, you know, I'm on this this Cameo app where people can make requests, you know, for, for you to sing happy birthday to somebody or wish them or give them a pep talk or whatever. And just recently, a gentleman sent in a request and he said, you know, my friend's a huge SVU fan. Can you just say hello to her? And she was just wondering, you know, why was Warner so mean? to to Finn and and Olivia when the, when she came in you know was it because she was tired from covid and i was like yes you got it you got it <laughs> you got the many layers of the that many, scene yes right. yes the subtext and everything yeah it was great well that series isn't going anywhere thank god i mean it's it's pretty amazing you know the fans are legion and uh, you know i'm often asked why do i think it's so successful and i think like with anything it's the writing first mm-hmm. absolutely secondly of course it's the 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 actors and the and the team uh behind mm-hmm. the scenes that deliver such an incredible product and for me I think it's also, for the most part, very satisfying for the audience because, you know, there's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. And at the end, usually, the bad guy gets its comeuppance, you know? I was ex- <laughs> I was going to say exactly that. Just knowing that it is wrapped up at the end of an hour, there is comfort in, um, forgive me for this term, but in the formula and knowing where that formula is going to lead. That's there's right. surprises along the way, but at the end, the bad guy is is going to find justice and the good guy succeeds. And there's something really wonderful to know that at the end of the hour. Absolutely. Yes. And, and, and occasionally there is that episode where where, you know, the good guys don't win. And so that's a little slice of life. And also, I think that the stories 
ripped from the headlines, right? That's that's always been the premise of all the law and orders, ripped from the headlines. And we rip from the headlines and then we do our own little twists and turns on the story, right? But there's always some kind of message that is being beautifully insinuated into the viewer's consciousness, which I think is so great. How do you compare it to all of the Broadway work you've done? Do you love being on stage more because there's that immediate feedback? And, you know, I mean, there's nothing like Come on, on ladies, stage. you know, you know. You know. <laughs> Listen, you know, theater is my first love. That's where I started when I came to New York with my musical theater degree, ready to sing, dance and act my little butt off. You know, it was invaluable. And and I always loved being on stage. I always love live performance. For for me as an actor, I find it the most gratifying because you get a rehearsal period, right. which you you know you just don't get in in film and TV for the most part. And then, as you said, Mary Lee, it's that immediacy with the audience and taking people on this journey with you and into this world with you and feeling them. Mm-hmm. You know, feeling when they're with you, feeling when they're not, and also just being able to digressing a little back to your question about character development, uh, Stephanie, in doing a play in live theater, there's the opportunity not only to develop that character before you step in front of an audience, but during the run of the show, you can continue to evolve and dig deeper and make it fresh and discover. And, and yeah, I love that. I just, you know, I love that. Can you spend a couple minutes and speak to the great Miss Lena Horn and what Ooh. sharing the stage with her felt like or any little nuggets or life lessons that you were able to witness or that she gave to you? I can't imagine <laughs> what that Listen, must have been. Yes, uh, I, I'm so blessed. I mean, that was my first job. That was my first <gasps> Broadway show. I had just been in Whoa. New York about three months. And I was sharing this story actually just yesterday with one of the graduates from CMU who happens to be the grandson of legendary musical director and arranger Danny Holgate. And five years ago, when he decided to pursue uh, drama school, the family, and I had never met him. I mean, I knew, you know, I knew his mom, but I didn't, I had never met him. And they reached out and they said, would you work with J.J. on his monologues? And he's a he's a he's a product of LaGuardia High School. Right. I'm like, sure. Yeah. Happy to. And so he came over to my house and, you know, we had a few sessions working on his monologue to get him ready to audition for all the schools. And he was going to audition for CMU as well. And so we worked on that. And I, you know, and I said, you have the tools in your pocket. Just go and do your thing and just be authentic, be present, be in the moment. And whatever happens, happens. Right. And so he is accepted at Carnegie Mellon. And Mm -hmm. so he graduated yesterday and for me to be up on the platform as a trustee, because it was my first year, I was, it was my freshman year as a trustee. So for me to be up on the platform and him to be out there in, in the audience receiving his degree was, I think, one of the most special moments in my life. And afterwards, we got together. And so we, I was saying to him, the question was, you know, did I have any challenges or how was it when I first started out, when I got to New York, what happened, blah, blah, blah. And so to try to make this long story condensed, I, I got a job 
um, doing a, a Kiss Me Kate at a theater outside of New York. And my tonsils abscessed right after the opening. And it shut down. It, like, closed my throat. And so, um, you know, I had to have all kinds of stuff. And I had to leave the show, basically. I had to leave the show. And I was devastated. I was so, and so I came back to New York and, and I didn't wait tables. My, my survival gig was office work because I could type because I learned to type in my public school education. And so I could <laughs> type. And so I was doing office work and there was a guy who worked at the office who was the son of Lena Horne's manager and her show was running, but her background singers, two of her background singers we're, we're leaving the show. And so they were looking for replacements. So I'm sitting at my secretary desk and he comes over and he says, I don't know if you know, but you know, they're making some changes over at Lena Horne's show. You know, you should have your agent check into it. I auditioned and, and I got the show. And so that was just like an example of, you just never know what life is going to do. So just keep, keep going, just right. keep going. Right. But working with Lena, first of all, I have never seen such incredible discipline and fortitude and resilience and 200% on the stage. I mean, she left it all on the stage and watching that every night was incredibly inspiring. Yeah, it's a masterclass. It was a masterclass. And because the show was all Lena for two and a half hours with an intermission, and we as the background singers and dancers, we were on for maybe 10 minutes at the beginning of the show. And then we did nothing until the finale where we came out and oohed and odd. To see her do that every single day. However, we didn't have eight shows a week. We had mm-hmm. six shows a week because she couldn't do eight shows a week. So there were no matinees. And so that was my introduction to Broadway. And I was like, wait, so I do six shows a week, but I get paid for eight? I like this Broadway stuff. <laughs> this is great. You know, this is going to work and then for me. Dreams were shattered. <laughs> and they were shattered on my next show. It was like, oh. <laughs> but it was fantastic. And, and one of my favorite little stories is my mom came to see the show naturally. You know, my mother has seen like everything I've done since I was five, right? I don't know what house management was doing, but they decided to put her in the front row, center seat in the front row. And I was like, oh my God. Too close, you know, <laughs> for me, you know, I'm like, I don't want to, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and, uh, but anyway, so it was great. And so, um, at intermission, I was walking by Lena's dressing room and she would always have her door open. She said, Toonie, Toonie, come here. I said, Oh Lord, what? You know, so I go in and she's putting on her makeup in the mirror and I'm standing behind her and I'm like, yes, Lena. She's like, Toonie, that's your mother in the front row. And I'm like, Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> And I say, yes, Lena, that's my mom. And she says, well, she is just grinning at me and I'm just grinning at her and we're having a good time. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, oh, I love that woman so much. I love that woman so much. And she loved me so much. And years later, she was performing at Carnegie Hall. And after the show, we were invited upstairs and it was a mob scene upstairs. It was a mob scene. The elevator doors opened and you couldn't get out. But anyway, so we're there. So I'm like up against the wall waiting. And I see Lena. She's come out of her dressing room. She's greeting people. She's talking. She's shaking hands. She's making her way through the crowd, making her way through the crowd. And I'm, you know, waiting patiently. And then she gets maybe like three people like deep away from me. And she reaches her hand through the people. 
And so mm. I reach my hand. So we take hands and she just clutches my hand and she's talking to this person and she's talking to that person and she's present and total with them, but she will not let go of my hand until she yes. gets to me. And she's like, Toonie, I am so proud of you, everything that you have done. You know, so of course I started crying. <laughs> of course. I don't know who I'd want to be more being Lena standing center stage and seeing the audience and feeling that energy or you, your point of view, being part of the art and the creation of her show and yet seeing her and the way the audience responds or your mama front row center, seeing it all and smiling and seeing my, you know, baby girl up on stage with Lena Horn, like all parts of that trifecta seems so glorious it really was and it definitely like set the tone for the rest of my career what led you to uh produce in 2007 what was it about spring awakening Mm. in particular that you said okay the buzz that hit new york when this show was happening and the huge billboards and these young kids and their energy and the edge with which they were telling the story you know they said not since rent has this sort of theater making really affected people in that way did someone approach you or had you heard of the project and said i'm going to be a part of it i was approached my dear dear friend friend, sister, and colleague who was a producer on As the World Turns at the time. We would constantly share with each other, you know, what are the projects we were involved in, what we're up to, what we're doing. And she was actually, she stepped in as producer on this project. And it was actually, I think, her second theatrical production that she was going to be involved in. And so she and I just, we met for lunch. She's telling me about Spring Awakening and and she was raising some funds, if you're interested, blah, blah, blah. And so she sent the material and between the creative team, the music and the video, the bitch mm-hmm. living video that they had shot from the Atlantic Theater production, I said, you know what, this is something. I didn't know whether it would be successful or not. I knew it was very risque, if you will, but I just felt this was really special. And so I said to Jen, yeah, I'll I'll invest. And then somebody dropped out on the producing team. And so Jen said, do you want to come on in a, in a stronger capacity? And I said, yes. So it was really beginner's luck, if you will, or fate or, you know, whatever. But one, we didn't even know how the show would be received. And we certainly didn't expect the multitude of Tony recognition that accompanied it. And in doing that, around that same time or that same season, August Wilson's last play, Radio Golf, was coming to Broadway. Right. And so a couple of the producers on Spring Awakening were also on the producing team of Radio Golf. And so they asked me if I would join that team and help to bring that to fruition. And of course, I mean, being from Pittsburgh, first of all, where August plays take place, except for Ma Rainey, which takes place in Chicago. He's my homeboy. You know, the work is legendary. It was a no-brainer. Yes, I will do this. And it was actually the first time that I really assumed a position where I had to bring other people onto the team with me as far as investing was concerned. And so that was just a new challenge. I didn't know how successful I would or would not be. Fortunately, I was very successful. But, you know, it became a real kind of, okay, I have to strategize how am I going to pitch this and sell this to to get people involved? So that was just another kind of it was for me, it was just kind of like a a master's like crash course in producing. 
and, mm-hmm. you know, particularly the financial component. Do you also find that it's easier to pitch and promote and sell a play or product that you believe in as opposed to yourself? Or are you a true self-advocate and those words and that pitch comes real easy to you when you're speaking to yourself and your talent? I am the worst person in self-promotion, but I think really successful at promoting something that I believe in. Yeah, totally. Totally. I'm like, it's not about me. You know what I mean? It's, it's not about me. It's about this wonderful thing that, you know, I feel that you would be enriched by supporting. I find that a lot of actors or creative type are not good at being producers and being entrepreneurs and, and doing all of the work that comes behind the scenes than are good at it. And so I think it's rare to find someone like you who's done both. And do you think being an actor made you a better producer? And do you want to continue producing and finding more things to, to bring other actors into that part? Yeah, I think it's made, I think it's made me, it made me, uh, it made me a, a, a better producer. And it also made me, being a producer made me a better actor. It provided me a deeper understanding of what supports my work as an actor. Most of the things we either don't know or we take for granted, right? Mm-hmm. And so it just really kind of said, it really enriched and supported that. And then on the directing front, certainly being an actor has provided me a certain understanding, sensibility, and approach to directing that I don't think I would have had had I not been an actor. The best directors always have been actors. At, at some point. point. Yeah. And, and, you know, and what I learned, particularly as far as kind of segueing into directing, what I learned is, you know, I would be working with young directors or maybe not so young directors, and I would find that I was giving them my stuff, you know? Yeah. I was giving them my goods. Yeah. And so it, it became a point where I said, you know, wait, maybe I should use my goods for something that is my own. If you could pick up and produce anything right now, what would it be? What would the dream thing for you to just make right now? What would you do? Oh, wow. Well, actually, there are uh, two things <laughs> that I would love to come to fruition that we're working on step by step. And one is called Jazzland. And Jazzland, it's an animated series that we're actually looking at doing animated and live versions of. It's a story of a, a young girl in Harlem during like the jazz age of Harlem, who kind of goes down a rabbit hole and ends up in Jazzland. And it's a coming of age and it's introducing, uh, hopefully, a note, a whole new audience to jazz music in all of its many fabulous forms. So that's one project. And then the other project, actually, that I'm developing is called Steel Town 68. And basically, <laughs> and basically it's about, uh, it centers around an African-American family who owns a funeral home business. So that's what you, you had a funeral home business growing up? Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in a funeral home. That's who we're focused on. But it's it's about, you know, the turbulent times during that period, juxtaposing it to where we are right now and the relevance of, of that time and how it's relevant to right now and the background, the score of Motown and that kind of wow. you know, music and focusing on this family family drama that expands out into, you know, the community as well. Next to the Black church, the Black funeral home was very much a center of the Black community. So 
we're working on that. that Tamara a- Tooney, you buried the lead. You grew yeah, up in what? a funeral home. <laughs> we are not glossing over that. Go back to that, please. <laughs> yes, yes. Born into the funeral home business. How did that inform you? I mean, obviously, we've now seen Pittsburgh is just part of who you are. It's in every breath and every step. But how does growing up in a funeral home inform you in so many ways? I think it was just as uh, normal uh, an existence and, you know, family dynamic as anybody's. I remember my father used to say, there's nothing to be afraid of. The dead won't hurt you. The living will. So there was that, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> and there and, is that. Right. And then also oh. it was just reverence and a respect, but also like not a fear of death, understanding that this human form is a shell and that, you know, the living energy that's in it just moves out of it. And also, I think, you know, be working as the medical examiner and being in the morgue and you know, having to deal with the <laughs> fake dead bodies and stuff. You know, I You're was comfortable there. There's I, I was, an, there's an I understanding. There, I was comfortable with understanding. And, and also there was a, a respect and a reverence, you know, for, for these people, these former human beings who were passing through my, my office. So can I ask you a personal question? Yeah. Yeah. Do you believe in heaven or higher plane or somewhere where the spirit ascends? I'm not a big believer in, you know, in heaven because then I would have to believe in hell and I don't. But what I do believe just from my geeky science kid physics laws that energy doesn't die, it changes form. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm a firm believer in that the energy that we are vibrating as in this body does come out of that body and joins on a bigger plane until it perhaps might enter into another vessel at some point. Cause I do believe in past life. I do believe that, you know, we, we get, uh, we get opportunities, we get more and more opportunities. Right. So that's what I practice. That's very much what I believe too. But I have one other thing that I add to it that when, when someone you love passes and that energy then comes from the, their body, some of it joins the greater consciousness and the greater energy that connects us all, but some of it stays. Pieces of it go inside of you. Pieces of it stay in all the places they loved, all the beautiful theaters that you've worked at, all the beautiful woods that you hiked in. And I think it happens with all creatures, with dogs and, you know, everything. And I feel it all the time. Like when I go on my dog hikes, because I had this one dog for almost 15 years, he was with me through everything, all my New York days. And when I go on my hikes up here, sometimes I just feel them. I feel it with my dad. I feel it so often. I really, I really believe that. I totally agree. I totally agree. And I believe that even though my dad never physically saw my son grow up, that the part of his energy that entered into me when he died got to witness my child's growth through me, which is even more special than witnessing it on the outside. You Absolutely. Know? I totally believe that. I, all my I, I totally concur. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And my... My dad was a guy who believed in heaven and hell. And when he was dying, he was really frightened, you know, and he Mm. said, what if you get punished? What if you get this? And I said, no, dad, I really don't believe that. And I told him what I thought. And he's like, well, if it's true, I'm coming back and I'm letting you know if you were right (laughs) or wrong. And I was like, okay. Has he let you know? Has there been an event where you're like, that's my pop? Yep. I received a very clear, clear, could not have been clearer sign within weeks of his death. Did it involve cannolis? 
It did not involve cannolis. <laughs> okay, I'm just asking. It did, it did involve black silk shirts and gold chains. All right. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely. I totally agree with you. I, You know, my dad passed, uh, it'll be eight years ago now, and you're right. It's like all, all the time, all the time. I have an older sister who passed very young at the age of 37, all, and, you know, all the time. And I remember when we when she had passed and we were in my we were in her home, you know, having to gather some things for her to wear for the funeral. Me and my my other sister, just the two of us. Yes. And and my husband, my ex-husband now, but my husband, he had come to the house with us, but he was downstairs. And so my sister and I were upstairs and we were going through her things. And we're like, well, yeah, she would like this. She would like that. And we put it all out on the table and we looked at it and we started crying and the lights in the house just went out and came back up again and went out and came back up again. And we were just like, what the, you know? And then my husband from downstairs said, is everything okay up there? You know, and my sister and I, we just started laughing because we knew it was my sister, Terry saying, don't cry. Don't cry. Snap out of it. Snap out of it. Don't cry. I'm all right. You know what I mean? And so when we came down, my, my husband said, when the lights went out, he started to come up the steps and he felt this coolness rush past him and he stopped. And I was like, that was my sister saying, let my sisters have their moment. And then we're going to move on. (laughs) Covered in truth bumps right now. I'm covered in truth bumps. Yes, yes, yes. Life is filled with little magic moments. You know, as you say that, Mary Lee, I'm hoping coming out of this pandemic that, you know, we all as a society and a world will be able to recognize all those magic moments that, you know, we often either take for granted or just, you know, breeze through this universal pause that was imposed upon us has value and we can find the value in that. We had to learn something. The lack of connection and the desperate need to connect now, I feel is deeper than ever. And I just pray that humanity at large can hold on to that. I love humans, but I know we also learn lessons. And then three months later, it's like that lesson never existed. Exactly. What happened? Business as usual. No. Business as usual. And, you know, it's up to us to hope, pray, and act. We have to be the heroes that we're looking for. There's a there's a really interesting um, yoga philosophy that's based on the seventh chakra, which is the seventh energy chakra, which is the one that connects us all together. It's the thing that literally tries to teach us that we're all we all come from one place. And so they sort of they talk about the aspen trees. So if you've ever Mm. been to Colorado and you look at a field of aspen trees, you think those are all individual trees, but they're actually not. It's actually the largest living organism on the face of the earth because so they actually, all share the same root source. It's one tree. Wow. It's one root source. Wow. And so when that, when that root source spreads like that and creates that forest, one bark beetle can come in and it can destroy one of the trees. And what it does is then sends that black fungus through the root system, wipes out all the trees. But the other side of that is when there's a forest fire, 
and it wipes out the trees. If one shoot remains, it can regenerate the entire forest. And so the whole lesson of chakra seven is we are all the trees. What do you want to send through that root source? What do you want to send? Do you want to send light and creativity and rebirth and regeneration and connection? Or do you want to be a bark beetle? Right. You know, right. and you get to choose like, what do you want to send out? Because it matters. I'm going to so put that on a t-shirt. Don't be a bark beetle. Don't be a bark beetle. <laughs> right. I want to hear a little about what you're doing with the Harlem skating. Figure skating in Harlem was formed 25 years ago. It, it stemmed from a desire and a need for a skating program in, in Harlem for young girls. Harlem had uh, Harlem hockey and the gentleman who was uh, the coordinator of the Harlem hockey reached out to a a young woman who had recently graduated from Tisch in filmmaking. And uh, her name is Sharon Cohen. And she, Sharon was a competitive skater in her youth. And so he reached out to her and said, would you be interested in teaching girls in Harlem figure skating? And so she said, yeah, sure. You know, And it was just kind of a fun thing that she was doing in her spare time. And then she realized that the need and desire was great. And she also understood what figure skating provided her as far as life skills were concerned. And so our mission at Figure Skating in Harlem is to provide girls academic excellence, leadership skills, self-esteem building through the fine art and discipline of figure skating. And a very important component of this is the professional and Olympic figure skaters support the program. The the community, the ICE community as a whole supports this program. And we would have a fun, when we decided to have our first gala, we decided to have an ice skating party. And it was called Skating with the Stars. And so the professional and Olympic figure skaters would come and they would, you'd be able to skate on the ice with Sasha Cohen and Christy Yamaguchi and you know what I mean? And it was extraordinary. So, and, and that, you know, that helped us to build and build and build. And the most exciting thing is the, the program has been so successful that we started a figure skating in Harlem, Detroit chapter that is about three years old, I think. And so that's going extremely well, extremely well. And the other thing I want to add is our program, our girls developed into such extraordinary skaters that we have formed the only all black and Hispanic competitive figure skating team. And our team has medaled bronze, silver, and gold. It's incredible. Planting those little seeds makes them feel that it's possible. Yeah. Our goal is not to create Olympic skaters. Our goal is to create champions in life. Mm -hmm. I love that. (laughs) I love it. And it's all the metaphors, the falling down. Oh, yes. And get back up, dust yourself off, get back up and keep it moving. And creating beauty out of chaos. You know, the chaos when you first get on the ice and you learn that you're chaotic and out of it comes beauty. Yes, And that's what life is too. It's chaos to beauty. That's any invention of anything. And I would add beauty and strength. Yeah. Yes. And now our five questions. All right. If you could have any special skill or talent, what would that be? To make people laugh all the time. Tell us something surprising about yourself that most people don't know. I'm really great with power tools. 
Oh, <laughs> I love it. Enviable. That is enviable. <laughs> if you could go back to your teen or 20 year old self, what would you tell her? It's going to be fantastic. What, if anything, do you use for a good luck charm and why, or a ritual and why? I mean, I could be super practical and say, you know, my, my yoga practice every morning, because if I don't, I won't be able to move, <laughs> you know, for real, you know, got to stretch it out in order. I know that feeling. Exactly. But, but I would say, you know, as kind of a, a good luck practice, you know, I think, I think that would just be more about just kind of being still when I'm feeling something is, you know, out of my control, just, you know, breathing and being still. Okay, final and the deepest question of this morning is, if you were a nail polish color, what color would it be? And what would that clever cheeky name of the nail polish? <laughs> well, first of all, <laughs> first of all, it would be red. I think I would call it burn this. Ooh, yes. I love it. Yes. <laughs> you are a force and we feel so grateful for your time. Thank you both. This has been nothing but a pleasure. It was Thank great you. to see you. You be well. You Love too. You. Love you too. Take care. Stages podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Our theme song says, love where you are now, but sometimes we all need a little help. I've learned from therapy and in my yoga practice that growth comes from challenges. A good therapist can help you reframe the way you look at a challenge and your life. And BetterHelp can provide you with a therapist that give you some tools to navigate. They offer customized online therapy, either on video or phone chat sessions. It's more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can reach a therapist in under 48 hours. And right now, Stages cast members get 10% off their first month with BetterHelp, so don't wait. Remember, when you support our sponsors, you support Stages Podcast. So log on to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash Stages, and love where you are now. Hi, everybody. So coming up on our Thanksgiving episode, Mary Lee and I will be answering all of your questions. Little by little, some questions have been coming in and we're so grateful for those. But now's the time. If you want to ask us everything and anything, please send them our way. And um, that's what our Thanksgiving episode is going to be. We're looking forward to answering all those pressing, emotional, messy questions. You can email us a question at our website, stagespodcast.net, or you can leave us a comment on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We also may answer our five questions that we've been asking everybody else all year. We're really looking forward to hearing what you guys want to know. Now, back to what struck a chord with us. I just want to make sure that I'm very clear that when we speak about the public school system and as we say this sort of the deterioration, that is by no means is a statement on the passion and the work of our teachers. But that it is really now the focus of getting the numbers for common core so that the funding or the grants will be you know given to this particular school district and somehow that of course is necessary you need the funding in order to continue the education but as in all things when the bottom line is money then you can lose the heart of the child, the need of the child, the trajectory of their learning and the joy that goes along with it. So I certainly didn't want that to be an indictment 
um, when we were speaking about the lack of arts, the lack of sports, the lack of extracurricular activities that really buoy our kids amongst the, the rigor of learning the other general education that has to be done. And I would be remiss had I not taken the time to say, teachers, we honor you. You're heroes. You are far more than just essential workers. You are there helping to lovingly rear our children, teach them, and also buoy their little fragile spirits and give them all they need through the course of the day. And boy, do we know that more now than we did certainly before COVID. So that's what I needed to speak on. Yeah, I think teachers and nurses should be amongst the highest paid people in the world. Agreed. (laughs) I think part of the problem that we're facing as a nation is the education system was set up when we were creating factory workers. When we were creating people that's to come out and follow a plan and go to A to B and it's a straight line and this is your job and this is what you do. And that was when you were in a world where you could work in a factory for the rest of your life and create a wonderful family life and own a home and all of that. Everything's changed except the school system. Having raised a son who is dyslexic and having grown up as a dyslexic in this school system, I see what it does to people. When we are teaching to an antiquated system, it's stifling all of the teacher's creativity because they're only teaching to test taking, which doesn't allow them to be creative or teach kids to think outside the box. And I think that's a big part of the problem. But the good news is colleges are actually looking for dyslexic kids and kids with learning differences. They're actually starting search programs specifically for these kinds of kids because they're starting to realize almost all of our entrepreneurs, almost all of the people who are creating something new have these learning differences. Yep. So that's really exciting. So it's starting to be recognized and maybe down the line, there'll be a change, but I agree with you wholeheartedly. What we're talking about is not a slight against teachers who I believe come from such a, a true place in their heart to make a child's life better and have their hands tied a lot of the time. So. Yeah. And when T- when Tooney spoke, she spoke so much about the holistic idea of a person, even when speaking about her skating program, right? It starts as one thing. It starts as get out there, do it, build your self-esteem. And then that builds a confidence, which then builds a want to learn more, to do more, to expand. She spoke at it from all these different angles, but at the core of it was always about evolving as a person, growing and learning, recognizing your beginnings, but still reaching these great lengths of of growth. And that was um, really something that I took from her discussion. I want to bring up how we had to redo her opening because she was like, I'm not an actress, I'm an actor. I love that she will not be put into categories. I heard this interesting thing. If you think about it, men, when you're filling out a form, men have one checkbox, right? Mister. Women have three. You're a miss, you're a missus, you're a ms. And we are forced to identify by marriage. Are you single? And the missus is M-R-S, which means you belong belong to to someone else. Mister. Did she talk about that in her interview? No. No. What what happened was I was really struck by the way she was like, you know, why should I be called something different than what a man does? Actress. Uh Yeah. uh And that's uh what got, and it stayed with me, even though I cut it out. And then I was listening to a different podcast and they started talking about this. Women have to check the miss box. And in France, they have now done away with the word mademoiselle. Wow. 
it shouldn't matter if I'm on, if I'm available or not. I'm a woman. Right. What do you care if I'm married or not? You know, in Latin American culture, it, it is a very, even though there's that machismo that they talk about, but it is a very matriarchal society. Mm -hmm. Right. And so Seb and I got married first at just city hall and they ask you to write down what your, you know, new surname would be. And he looked at me and he said, I'm happy to take your last name. And I was like, what? Like at first there was just this lump in my throat. And then I went through this whole litany of, oh, do you realize how you'd be made fun of? Do you realize how I would be made fun of? You would be known as Mr. Stephanie J. Block. Like there's a whole connotation about what that would mean about your manhood being less than. And my, I would uh. be such a shrew if that were to happen. So it wasn't even, he, I don't think it was an, an empty you know, offer, but on my end, there was no possibility to really see that through because I thought, can you imagine how we would be looked at as individuals, as a couple? No, no way. So hence the block Arcellus, but that was a true question for him. You know, I'm, I'm happy to take your name because that is, that's an option here. It may not be on the form, but culturally for me, that is an option. I was like, whoa. I wanted the same last name as my child. Uh -huh. I wanted us all to have the same last name. So that was one reason why I was happy to take the name. But the other reason is that Fairbanks is so much nicer than Graffio. It's pretty good. What's up, Graffio? Yeah, yeah. And you know just how to spell Fairbanks. <laughs> so to go from Graffio, how you doing? What's up? To Fairbanks. Hello, Lee Fairbanks. Hello. <laughs> just make, and here's the interesting fun fact. Douglas Fairbanks, wife. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Her name was Mary Lee. Mary Lee Come Pickford. On. Come on. That's right. Of course. Of course. Isn't the that old... cool? Yes, very. So say goodbye, Graf. Oh, my God. Or goodbye, Graf. Ciao, Graf. Or cheerio, Mary Lee family. So if this episode resonated with you, please follow, subscribe, and share. You can always find us at stagespodcast.net. A big thank you goes out to our assistant and doer of all things technical, Saren Cho. Thank you to Noah Kaiserman and Garrett Healy for our beautiful original music. Melanie Von Trapp for our Stages Podcast logo. Brock Grenfeld, our sound engineer. And Allison Arns, our PR and social media expert. And thank you, our cast members, for joining us today. We hope you come back next week. <laughs>